You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs. Griffith. I'm Dan Lipman. And I'm Kelly Daniels. And this is the first ever episode of Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs. So, um, how are you guys doing? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. So <laughs> far, so good. You guys nervous? This is a uh, yeah. historic episode. Yeah. It is. There's a lot writing on it. and um... <laughs> So much writing on this. The way that the podcast is going to work is that each week or each episode, we're going to have a, um, a subject and a different co-host will choose the subject and that, that person will sort of uh, guide the discussion that day. Um, but this being the very first one, it's sort of the, uh, what's it called when you're the pilot? Right. This is the one that's going to go up to management and see if we're going to get the big the money. premiere, right? The money, we got to find so out if, if we be... can get the uh, no the sleep comfort. Uh, yeah, because... if we can, yeah, if we can get some people to support us, that'd be great. So, uh, before we get into our subject today, I thought since this is our very first episode, we should introduce ourselves a little bit. And uh, so, I don't know, Holly, what do you want the listeners at home to know about you? Well, that's a deep question. Um, I am currently grad student and teaching assistant through Western Illinois University. Um, and uh, it's going okay. I'm exhausted. And I also am a poet. I received the 2015 Midwest uh, Collins Poetry recip- Recipiency. Hey, not um, too shabby. Not too shabby. Uh, yeah. I'm moving on up. Recipiency? Yeah. I've never heard of that. The the word recipiency? Yeah. I think I word. just rolled with that word. Yeah, I like it. That's... I think it's actually a word though. Yeah. I, I believe I believe it's a word. And um yeah, so that went really well. Uh graduated with a writing degree, working on my English masters, and life in general is pretty good. Have a few kids, have a man that loves me. He made me eggs this morning. I feel good about that. What kind? Uh scrambled, of course. Those are good. They were okay. Were they vegan eggs? They were, they, yeah. <laughs> Is that possible? That's a little yeah, sample they were, of the humor that they were tofu eggs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that's, it's going well. We've got a few cats. I think, um, we like playing games. I can't think of anything else that's really tantalizing about my life right now. What uh, What is your uh, boyfriend's family do? What What line of work are they in? Wow. Well, retired mostly, uh-huh. which is kind of nice. Um, okay. And he's I, got an extended family in in Kansas, yeah. So, all right, I approve. It, yeah, he's a therapist, so I constantly have in home uh, therapy for free. It's the main mm. reason I was attracted to him in the first place. Mm, and so, good. if I have a complaint, um, you know, I'll say you didn't do the dishes, and he'll his response is very therapeutic. Well, how does that make you feel? <laughs> oh, that's yeah. what my wife says too. <laughs> She'll go to meditation for 10 days, and usually we fight about the dishes all the time, but after the meditation, I'll say, you didn't do the dishes, and she'll say, oh, I can see that really upset you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it works out. 
Yeah, that lasts for a day, and then she's back to, what you doing this time? Yeah. Um, We like to play Tetris a lot. Mm. Yeah. Old school. Yeah, old school. I'm into Frogger, Pong. I'm really hip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a little bit about me. I think that's a pretty, pretty good start. Yeah. That's plenty. That's a lot. Too much. I kind of overshared. <laughs> I overshared. Daniel Libman. Uh, all right. I see, yeah, I'm Dan Libman. Should I just go? I'm Dan Libman. Uh, I've been married for 24 years. No, shit. 21 years. Wow. But it's going to be 24. Um, That's pretty good. I have a, uh, I have a, uh, an 18-year-old son who's just started college and a 14-year-old daughter who just started high school. I teach creative writing and developmental writing, which I prefer. And um, I'm the recipiency of uh, a <laughs> prize and a Plimpton prize, and I've got a short story collection. I think nice. that's it. Yeah. Wow, that was fast. That was Married but... but Looking is the name of my short story collection, and it's available to subscribers of this podcast, promo code rejection letter. Wow. That was so yeah. much more professional I think than you're my lying intro. About the promo code, but I've I done a little work with NPR, so I'm, I'm used to, uh, uh, you know, the whole. The shtick. The shtick, that's exactly. I'm, and I'm good with words, as you can see. You're very good with mm-hmm. words. My words, apparently. Recipiency. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Kelly Daniels, and uh, my, I guess, biggest, around here at least, my biggest public identity is that I'm from California. Um, where we are right now is the Midwest, a place called the Quad Cities, which is famous for being lampooned by Ian Frazier in The New Yorker once. Wow. Oh, really? In, yeah. It was in Shouts and Murmurs. The big joke was that there's a lot of cows around the Quad Cities. And oh. It's an urban area of about 400,000 people, and... So many cows. And yeah, there's a lot of cows walking down the street, according to Ian Frazier. But um, Kelly, let me ask you, I've always wondered, most people go to California. You grew up there and then went in the wrong direction. Yes. Geographically. What, what, what happened there? How'd that happen? Is that a slightly jokey question? Because that's the one that I always get. What are you doing here? Um, I will say that my thing, like all three of us here, is writing. I really have uh, devoted my professional and much of my personal life to the attempt to make literature or to just write well. And if you want to do that, you, there are sacrifices involved. There just are. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up getting a job just kind of going to school because I liked it um, after a fairly tumultuous youth and adolescence and um, young adulthood. I got into the whole MFA racket and kept doing it and doing it. And eventually I got a pretty good job at a really cool little school, which is where we are right now, a place called Augustana College. And we're using their radio station, their student radio station called WOG. Radioactive is their sort of um, just giving them a plug since they're letting us use our gear. Um, I should probably also say uh, thank uh, Gabe Tucker, who's our producer here, student at Augustana. So I can't complain too much about Augustana on this podcast. I'll do a little bit. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but if we want to complain about our day jobs, we all have to be a little careful because we all need our day jobs, don't we? Um, That's what a day job is. Yeah. And so all of you who are in this racket realize that there's like 300 applicants for every tenure track job in creative writing. And so God. you don't get to just decide, Hey, I want to live in San Diego. I applied for jobs in San Diego. I just didn't get them. So I got an offer here. I moved here and I've been here for nine years and, uh, like you guys, I have a family, and um, here I am, just sort of trying to make it work. That's yeah. beautiful. 
isn't it? it? I know, it's very poetic. It was not. It says <laughs> You're the blushing. Poet. Says You're the blushing. Poet. Okay. <laughs> Let me look at my little cheat sheet here. Um, so, having introduced ourselves, let's move on to the main feature of today's episode, and that is our subject. I really initially wanted to do a light subject or something that writers would understand most other people wouldn't really care about. Maybe a few people would get their feathers a little ruffled. Like I was thinking, you know, is the short story dead? You know, a question like that. And all the short story writers out there will go, oh, that's terrible. Like I can't can even suggest such a thing. But it seems that the timing of our first podcast corresponding with uh, certain political fortunes in America and Europe have have really kind of pushed us into addressing the, I don't know, do I want to do the pun, the elephant in the room? Yeah. Um, the big orange elephant. Yeah. yeah. And, and not just that, but, but, you know, a lot of things. And so if you look at Lit Hub or you're kind of checking out online what writers are saying and talking about, a lot of it is that the very old question about what is the relationship of art in this case, the, the art of writing, to the world in which it lives. You know, what is it there for? What is the purpose of art? What is the purpose of uh, short stories and essays and poems? Um, is it to reflect reality? Is it to advocate a certain kind of behavior? Is it something more complicated? Um, I suspect it's something more complicated than those two pretty easy answers. Um, and so, let me, I have my own kind of uh, answer to this question, or, or at least something to talk about. Uh, but uh, let's start with uh, you, Dan. What do you, uh, what do you have to say about what writers should be doing at a time like this, if any? So just kind of a small, small topic to yeah. just jump in. Yeah, this is a big one. This is going to be the biggest and probably potentially most depressing topic we're ever going to... I'm looking up something while you... But, but yeah, Dan. Well, it, is it a Groupon? Well, I would say that, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I hope this is okay to say, but, like, I really don't know. I haven't worked it out myself. In my first response to the election of, of Trump, which is when we're recording this, happened a week and a half ago, was to um, feel like I should retreat. You know, I had spent the last like many people in the last couple of months, just reading the New York Times. I couldn't wait every morning to get into the New York Times and read about all the ways in which Trump was fucking up and how, yeah. his, you know, how his personal businesses are going to fail because of how uh, offensive he is. And so um, even though towards the end of the campaign I started to get a really bad feeling, I was totally unprepared for what did happen emotionally, which sounds silly, um, but – you know, I had trouble the next day facing my classes. We had talked about it in my classes, and I had told my students, don't worry about it. This this will never happen. And um, I have a very diverse classroom, and, and it was very difficult to face them the next day. Um, and I remember reading Garrison Keillor, of all people, saying that what what writers should do, what liberals should do, what Democrats should do is to just disappear for four years. And I think the metaphor he used mm. was tend your garden, grow tomatoes. Um, and I think that that's sort of an old man response. I don't, I don't think that that is the correct response. And I, I don't think that is what I'll be doing. 
I'm not quite sure what I'll be doing. Is it fair to quite... say that Garrison Keillor is just like the worst? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a fan. I mean... No, I don't. I don't think he's a good singer. Maybe that's it. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had a question for you. Um, you said that you were having, you thought it was silly to have an emotional kind of response to what was going on. Why? Why would you think that was silly? Maybe, maybe em- embarrassing is the word, or I don't know. You know, I think um, it's a good question. I don't know. I guess it's sort of maybe um, being a 50-year-old man, I'm sort of embarrassed by my own emotions, although I'm getting less so all the time. But um, I had four classes the next day, and I, I got choked up talking about it. And the students were at some point having to cheer me up and tell me it was going to be okay. And I was like you don't know what you're talking about. You're 18 and <laughs> you were two years old on 9-11 and this feels like 9-11. Yeah. And actually in the days after, it's only felt worse in a, in a weird way because uh, we don't even know what the wreckage is going to look like. So I don't want to get too heavy on it. But so yeah. in the meantime, I guess to get back to Kelly's question, what am I supposed to do while I'm sitting in front of my laptop now as a writer? My short answer is, I don't know. Holly? Yeah, I will say that my gut reaction uh, from from that evening, I was watching and, um, you know, I, I started crying. And as a yeah. as it was devastating to me and I teach a I teach college writing. So I have a group of 18, 19 year olds who have very, you know, very similar experience to you, Dan, where yeah. they were more optimistic but probably due to their cluelessness. And um, you, the majority of them did not vote. And we had conversations yeah. in our class. And as uh, and I was constantly telling them how rhetoric is the motivator for all things. Um, and, you know, writing is the motivator for, for all things. It, it just touches all things. And this was such an important rhetorical season to be in. And so watching this happen and know that that people were devastated because of this amazing it's such a it's a, such a bipolar feeling. You have some amazing uh, rhetoric happening and you're seeing just this magic happen. People are being moved by these fantastical words and that in and of itself is I'm awestruck by it, but it's painful to watch because you know that the motivation behind it is not necessarily of pure intention with regards to humanity or civics in general or ethics, in my opinion. And the next day I was done for, uh, as a poet, I spent a lot of time accessing my emotions in order to, uh, you know, I work with a lot of absurd concepts and I like to look at reality through absurd lenses and, and so I'm. It's taxing. It just felt like, you know, everybody says it's the weight of the world. It was taxing for me personally, and it took me a couple of days to get over it. But I got to say, as a writer, my first instinct was, all right, it's time to write. It's time to. It's time to get to business. It's because yeah. you know rhetoric did this, and rhetoric can undo it. Well, shit got real. Perhaps the first time for the first time in our lives, we're all of an age where we haven't had a World War II kind of thing or a Vietnam, and all of our wars are basically, they're volunteer army now, so it's all the poor people go and, and die, and um, yeah. 
So yeah, there is a, uh, it's a heavy feeling, but it's also, there's a certain amount of excitement around things getting, uh, I suppose, interesting in the way that that, that ancient Chinese curse, if that's a real thing, may you live in interesting may, times. Yeah. Things just got interesting. I'd rather they hadn't. Um, yeah. As far as what writers can do, I have some d- doubts about how much writing can affect current events. I just don't think that any writer can change anybody's way of voting by writing an anti-Trump essay or short no. story or poem. And uh, I remember um, when uh, Trump started winning not um, primaries, there was this thing that went around the internet where 50 prominent writers wrote a letter and signed it, oh, like yeah. denouncing Trump, and then it became right. a, an online petition, one of those petitions where everybody... And there was a guy named Alexander Himmen, who's a Central European writer. He's an American citizen, I think, lives in Chicago. But he comes from one of those, like Serbia, I think. One of those places where you know those people <laughs> went through some, yeah. some tough stuff. And they always have a different perspective from your you're pretty spoiled American that, you know, dictators can take over, you know, things can happen. Writers can start getting thrown in jail. That, that actually does happen in the world. We don't really believe it in this country. Um, but it can happen. And so he was really critical of this online petition and this letter. He's like, what do you, what are you doing writing a letter and signing a letter? What is that going to do? Is it going to change any votes? No, it, it makes you feel good. Like you're doing something, but you're not really doing anything. And um, I tended to agree with him, but he didn't really have an answer for what you should be doing. Right, that's the problem. Anytime I read something, a short story, a novel, anything like that, where I feel like I'm hitting political talking points that you might see on, you know, a political party, even if I completely agree with them, or even more so if I don't agree with them, I just get completely turned off to the work. Just Mm -hmm. have no interest. And I, I think of... The great Russian writer Isaac Babel, who was hired by the Bolsheviks to write pro-Bolshevik stories. That's how they they had a department of propaganda. And writers were kind of, you know, grabbed and put and and hired. Here, we'll give you money if you uh, just keep (laughs) writing these good, keep coming out with these good stories. He couldn't do it. He kept sneaking in these criticisms of the regime within these supposedly pro this propaganda. And eventually he ended up in Siberia where he died. You know, they, he, he paid a big price. Um, so I, here's the one practical thing I could say about what writers can do and should do. I mean, we're there, we're in the business of telling the truth and bringing it to us. Even when we don't like it, there's a lot of bullshit on all sides of the political spectrum right now. And a lot of the problems we've had and the, the outcome that we don't like, we can put blame in a lot of places, but there was a ton of magical thinking going on in the left about what oh, reality yeah. was. And they turned out to be really wrong. And I think, Dan, your sense of embarrassment, my sense of embarrassment, had something to do with the smarties, the really educated people, the cultural elites were just completely wrong. Right. The polling data was yeah. completely wrong, and it reminds us that, okay, just because you put numbers on the end of it, 57.3, it starts with somebody making some assumption, and that some assumption is a guess. This is Those polls were worthless in the end because somebody well, guessed that this is what they 
what were you going to say, Dan? Well, no, I was just going to say that uh, I was well, I was going to agree with your point and amplify it by saying that um, they started out by saying everybody who votes for Trump is a racist. And now let me ask you, who are you voting for? So people just yeah. didn't say I'm voting for Trump, but in the end they did, of I, course. Absolutely. I was going to agree with that. I think a lot of people were very quiet on the issue and, and they, instead of speaking publicly, they just spoke with their vote. And yeah. you saw, I don't think the polls were reflecting a lot of what was really happening in, in homes and yeah. a lot of conversations that were happening in, in the private, you know, in private moments of people's lives. And, and it didn't matter how hard we laughed at John yeah. Stewart or Colbert right. or Samantha B because uh, nobody who voted for Trump were watching those shows in the yeah, first place. They so they weren't laughing with us. Yeah. Um, Maybe we should have laughed more and laughed harder at them. Maybe then we could have uh, <laughs> right. swayed the election. So anyway, I, uh, I think that we're in the business of telling the truth in, in whatever way, way we can, even if that truth is not pleasant to even our audience. But the other thing is, no writing is going to sway a vote. But I guarantee that Trump got almost none of the poets and poetry fan vote. No. And there almost none of the literary fiction vote. Yeah. So what one thing we can do is get more readers. <laughs> if we had more readers, because a lifelong reader especially of serious stuff, tends to make better decisions, in my humble opinion, than somebody who's never, who decides not to crack a book and never does their whole life. I'd like to think that's true. I like to think it's true, and it sounds a little snobby, and, and snobbishness is, has been one of these problems, but I think that, you know, people that, books have ideas in them, and books allow us to expand when we, not just books, but writing, um, literature, it expands us. It, it makes us, it allows us to try on different ideas. And I think it's an amazing thing, but it takes a long time. It takes, you can't just do it. It's not like a quick one-off thing, a certain devastating story or satire, and now everybody's there. We need, and so I think the one thing writers can do is try to appeal to a bigger audience than they get right now. Because right now, I don't feel like writers are even trying to reach. I know a lot of writers would say, yeah, I want to write a bestseller. But I think that even the publishing industry has narrowed their focus so much when it comes to literature. It's just some tiny little educated West Coast, mostly East Coast, New York-centric. And I would even say gendered. It's like I don't think the publishing industry even tries to attract male write, readers anymore with literature. Did you want to say something? Well, I was going to actually, I was going to comment on the type of writing that's happening in right now, which is you see an explosion of the fantasy and, and sci-fi genre. Yeah. And that has direct, it's directly correlated with what's happening politically and what's happening uh, socially. Um, and so I think that has the potential to attract male male readers um well i was i was gonna say i think i think writing i think writers are up against a giant when it comes to affecting people with their writing in, in the internet yeah, uh, for sure. in journalism which can apparently be anything nowadays yeah. um and anyone and you don't have you don't have an audience that is uh how do I want to put this? You don't have an audience that is trained enough to identify writing versus 
you know, your mom's decision to post a little blurb about how she feels. Um, Why on, do you hate mom so much? You know what I mean? Yeah, let's oh, talk yeah. about my mother. <laughs> um, oh, that's a, No, know. I think you're right. Here's the way I think it, about it is there's the, the sci-fi fantasy stuff, the, the Hunger Games, Twilight even. Some are, some are good, some are less good. There's Harry Potter. Those should be gateway drugs that lead readers into more and more sophisticated sure. writing. And I feel like there's a breakdown between the gateway drug of that yeah. and the stuff that we're calling literature. I don't. I think there's a big gap. And I think it has to do with a lot of writers feel like they only want to talk to the intelligentsia and they have a certain disdain for writing anything that might smell of genre. Sure. And I think we should all get less snobby about it and actively pursue our writers, um, our readers, um, to bring them into the fold of being a somebody who appreciates the complexity and the richness and the challenge of reading literature. And I think the world will be a better place if we can expand our reading market um, and we'll all make more money, which is really what this is about. Um, But (laughs) let me transition then into my second half of this question about, say, politics. It seems, I don't know if it's related. Maybe you guys can say these are two completely separate subjects, but this is another hot, hot topic, and that is the idea of political correctness and cultural appropriation and certain Mm -hmm. kinds of forces that some would say censor today's writer, that there's certain ways we're not allowed to write about certain... There's just some parameters that are in the way of pure artistic um, freedom. Now, the counter-argument is we're Mm -hmm. talking about just basic decency here and being... A gross person is not really, a, you know, artistic freedom shouldn't be used as an, as an, ex, as a, an excuse to be rude and to offend people. Um, well, the people but, who write like that aren't self-censoring anyway. Right. What do you mean? Well, I can't think of any specific examples at the moment, but if you're somebody who has this sort of unenlightened, gross ideas that you want to put down on paper, you're not going to sit and think, well, I don't want to offend this segment or it's that segment. I mean, it's the people who are already self-censoring well, let me, because you have a little bit of empathy for your readership. Let me put it, let me start with just a real specific thing. Lionel okay. Shriver's speech to a, do you know about that? Uh-uh. You do, Dan, don't you? Lionel Shriver is a novelist. I thought Lionel Shriver was a man because the name Lionel, like Lionel Richie, but it turns out it's a woman. She wrote, she did a anti-cultural appropriation worry and, speech and it it really got it's a long speech i actually took one for the team last night read the whole thing and it was (laughs) pretty tedious because it's familiar arguments um but it was actually a really good argument it's saying there's a chilling effect on novelists who if you happen to be white and if you happen to have characters who are of color you have to treat them with kid gloves because soon as you do something mean to your character put them in a potentially humiliating situation then you get accused of being a racist or propagating racist ideas and then on the other side if you say forget it i'm not going to take any chances i'm not going to have any people of color in my novel well then you get in trouble for not having a diverse cast of characters and so that's the point she made and i thought it was a really good one um i i imagine there could be some arguments i read some anti um there it on the internet, my quick Google search had like five to one 
against her argument to the one that was for her, right? So mostly the tide of internet articles and responses were negative. And the ones that I clicked on were pretty simplistic. They were like, plain and simple, she's a racist. And that, but no real evidence of, or no real nuance of discussing what racism is. The whole thing was super depressing. It threw yeah. me into like a bad place. Um, what I'm finally coming to, and then I'll shut up and let you guys talk about this issue, is my personal journey into literature. I was born, I was not of the intelligentsia class at all. I was not meant for education. I was very working, kind of sub-working class, sort of criminal class upbringing or childhood at least. And I finally started going to college. And uh, the one thing that saved me was reading like fantasy stuff, you know, the Lord of the Rings and all that, all the spinoffs. And I loved that stuff. And so I loved reading. And um, that gave me some advantage over other kind of working class kids. Um, so I could do pretty well in college. And then I finally was at this point where I, I was going, I had had the gateway drug of reading and my professors were trying to get me into reading more, more lit stuff. And I kind of liked Ernest Hemingway because he was this macho guy and, and I could relate. And I liked the idea of being this adventurous, heavy drinking kind of guy that, um, and then I found Charles Bukowski, which... Oh, I love Bukowski. You love Bukowski. A lot of people dump on Bukowski, and a lot of people dump bad. on Ernest Hemingway because they're misogynists. They yeah. are this and they're that. But Bukowski got me, a young kind of heavy metal kid with blue-collar background, into serious lit. And if I read Bukowski today, I th sometimes he's embarrassing, and sometimes I think he goes too far. I just don't see Bukowski ever getting anything going in today's literary environment i see a anybody like that and maybe we don't need a a new version of bukowski but we i think we do need a little bit more room to be offensive as writers not be yeah. completely obliterated instantly and the whole discussion shut down um and and because of that i think we're losing potential readers which goes back to my yeah. th dudes aren't reading anymore and part of it, I think, is this over-politeness that is being enforced upon writers to a certain extent. People have been programmed to take offense at absolutely everything that they find disagreement with. And this is, this is incorrect. To be challenged is the definition of, of to learn. You must be challenged. You must yeah. you must have your everything. You must have everything challenged in order to kind of expand your knowledge on the issue. And uh, I think we have taught a lot of a lot of students, a lot of younger people that they in in order to disagree, they must also be offended. And, right. and this is incorrect. And this is what you get when you, you know, you, I don't know I'm, I feel at a loss. I'm not sure that you can cultivate the, the audience that would accept Bukowski because they're too busy making issues of everything instead of just intaking the information and considering it. Nobody ha is taking the time to intake information, sit with it, meditate with it, ask themselves, you know, reflect on it. And and make decisions in their life according to uh, according to the solutions or the the uh, results of that reflection. Uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. What do you think, Dan? 
Well, I think Bukowski had something that he had an authenticity that sort of, um, you know, was it was larger than his offensiveness, right. and that pe- that that's what resonated with people. I mean, I <clears throat> I love Bukowski too, and when he, uh, I you know, I'm Jewish, and there were some offensive things that he had written, but I sort of loved reading that stuff because I felt like, oh, I'm part of the team of people that Bukowski's got problems with, and. and uh, <laughs> Especially in in the book Hollywood, which is not one of his more, um, it's not one of his better books, I guess. But it was one of my favorite ones because it was you could recognize the celebrities and the um, the offensiveness was so on the surface of it. Um, I don't know, but that's Bukowski. But you know, I, and I agree with what Holly is saying that there's sort of this. Um, you know, the the problem isn't being offended. The problem is the offense on behalf of other people that that yeah. happens. Which is, which is, I think it's, it's sort of, um, it's a, it's a form of empathy, which is certainly great, and it needs to be cultivated. But I think that, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess what you said, <clears throat> excuse me, that there should be more of um, sitting back and maybe thinking about it before, uh, you know, before we put the trigger warning on stuff. Right. Kelly, you've probably had this experience too, where you've had students. Um, have you? Do you give trigger warnings? Does your school support that? I don't know if my school supports it or not. Um, I have never been told I was supposed to do it, and I've never been told that uh, um, I shouldn't do it. So I just don't, but um, I I guess I informally, if I, I, in a joking way, um, when we read a story, I'll go, hey, there's the F word in this story if you guys can't handle it. And I, and I say it as a joke. But I also, it is a warrant. So that's a really long answer to a very simple question. No, yeah, but see, the, the problem with doing it that way, which is also sort of the way I do it too, is that it's kind of like, hey, we're, we're cool. And so if you are bothered by the F word, then, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to say it in that environment. I don't think people are bothered by that. Uh, I had a student, we were looking at a Clockwork Orange, and a student asked if she could um, say something beforehand about the sexual violence in there. I had no problem with that. And so she did. And she gave kind of an impassioned um, speech against the book before we, before we read it. Uh, And that was seemed to be a good solution. She had, she had not read the book, but she had come predetermined with her, uh, with what she was going to be offended by. But then I sort of looked at it differently uh, after she had done that. And I guess, you know, there are some difficult moments in that book and, um, I don't want to just say, you know, anything you're concerned about is uh, it does not have merit just because it's, a, you know, in the canon. So, yeah, it's a fine line. A friend of mine really dressed me down in email because here's the thing. He's not on Facebook. It was this, this pol- political decision he made to not be on Facebook or maybe it was a first. And um, but yet he heard that I posted some positive thing about Carl Uwe Knausgaard. I'm one of those fanboys of <laughs> the My Struggle books, as you I know, am too. Dan. And yep. um, and but he also there's some blowback against Knausgaard um, in that he's a white male, and we don't need any more white males. Is sort of the idea. I'm oversimplifying it. But this friend of mine dressed me down, like emailed me, "Hey, I heard that you're posting positive things on Facebook." A friend of mine told me and. What? And he was just basically yelling at me for, why are you supporting this person? And I said, have you read the books? And he's like, no, I would never read it. Like, and oh, it was, it see, really, and this is, a, this is a smart, cool dude. This is like one of the sweetest guys I know. 
and he's a wonderful writer, but I just think his political agenda eclipses, at least for me, what I read for. I read to be transported, and uh, he reads to make a statement, I think. Um, so anyway, I don't know. But there um, is, I mean, maybe in our political moment, we're sort of redressing some of the sins of uh, the past decades of, sure. of, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm not equipped to be the spokesman for the, I'm worried for, the sides are going to be going to retreat even farther to their trenches of of um, identity politics. I really worry yeah. that the Democrats and the left are going to go deeper into identity politics and deeper into insulting white people, white male, especially poor white males or unedu- lower education and belittling them. And then the the right is going to go deeper into white supremacy and quite frankly and i don't and i think it's just going to be this battle back and forth to see who gets the most votes out of the two opposing camps without any without any middle ground and and hope i really hope i'm wrong and i guess part of what i want to say in this podcast is i hope writers help lead the way in writing rich characters of all different colors and backgrounds that without feeling like you have to represent X kind of character in a certain kind of way sure. or else you're going to get in trouble because you've somehow crossed this line. Yeah, but take your shot. But then if you do get some blowback, I mean, if you get some response, I think that that's part of the part of what's great about writing. You get a response. And if you offend people, then uh, you don't run away from that conversation. Have that yeah. conversation. Yeah. That's what's successful. That I think that's what makes successful writing is when you are writing really on it, you know, you're un- uninhibited, and coming from a, a, a poetry background, I I'm fortunate in that I have an audience that is, I believe, a little more uh, ready. I'll mm-hmm. say that mm-hmm. they're they're ready to have anything said, and that's much. You know, if you have a different response from mainstream readers who are not ready, they are looking for a genre. They are looking for a certain type of uh, writing. They aren't really looking to be challenged in the ways that they don't want to be challenged, that they go to the bookstores to select the book that specifically meets their needs. It's a group polarization, as you're talking about, that, yeah. that you know, one side screws in tighter, the other side screws in tighter, and the more the right screws in, the more the left screws in. It's it's a polarizing effect. They, you know, people have such a a, a wide berth of freedom right now they can really create the world that they want to live in without having um the big difference between poetry and say novel writing right now is poetry is free from the new york publishing sure industry yeah we're and broke. i think bigger the problem yeah there's no money <laughs> yeah. and there's there's little readership that's the problem but you get to create pure art and pure art sure. is in the business of truth and challenging whereas the publishing industry in new york city is first off, it's in New York City. Yeah. All of our national literature is filtered through one geographical sensibility. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the publishing industry, um, I read an article recently, um, and uh, they pulled up some statistics, which are readily available. The publishing industry in is an incredibly, has a total workplace diversity problem. Well, in the, I, for, I wish I had the numbers with me, but approaching 90% of the people who work in that industry are white, and almost the same percentage are female. If you think about it, 
that's part of this whole thing of New York publishing and literature, at least, except for practical nonfiction books. They've given up on male readers, um, and uh, which I think is a real sh- shame, both from a more. business perspective. Women do read more, yeah. and that's true. And it's but it's almost like it's become a self fulfilling prophecy. So we're not even going to try anymore. Um, so yeah. anyway, you've got this diversity problem where every almost everybody in New York publishing is the same kind of person, and not just that. Think about what it takes to live in Manhattan and work in the lower levels of the publishing industry. It doesn't pay enough to actually support somebody living in Manhattan until you get up into the upper, upper levels. Um, and I know there's also some sexism. There's still male writers still win the prestigious awards. Oh, yeah. And at the very top. So I'm not saying that this is, that sexism doesn't exist in that industry. I'm just saying there is just a real palpable um, diversity problem and part of it is that they're not just, there's also a wealth issue. Almost everybody that works in that industry, it seems to me, is getting supported by somebody else. It's somebody with, probably has an Ivy League education, probably has parents with money. Um, and so you just, the, the sensibility that is choosing, that is filtering the, our national literature is so specific and so not representative of everything that I think that's, a big problem too. And well, and you like to think that small presses that are located elsewhere can take up some of that, but I don't know that they can because they still don't have the power to disseminate their work in in ways that New York publishers Where do. is where does the burden fall when you have male readers who are male when you have people when you don't have, <clears throat> let me rephrase. Um when you have n- males not reading what do you do? I mean, when do you think that happened? What do you do to get them to read? And and why why would they not read the stuff that women predominantly are pushing out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I, we've got the next uh, three podcasts. The topics are all <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read the book, but the title, The Goldfinch, doesn't exactly make me as a man go, that sounds really like my kind of thing. Why not? Well, I've read. Is it good? I'm a fan of Donna Tartt. That I didn't really, uh, I would say that it didn't hold my interest all the way through. Like, Oh, her first novel did, but, um, it's not bad. I got into it back to the Bukowski and before that, the Ernest Hemingway. And he has, I'm not saying every novel should be a war novel should be for whom the bell tolls or (laughs) the sun also rises, which isn't a war novel. It's a party novel in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that there just isn't a lot of dude friendly options. And I know this is a difficult discussion to make because somebody's going to come in and say, Oh, have you heard of this book, this book, this book, this book? And the answer is probably no, I haven't heard of it. But it seems like there's part of this whole, I don't know if political correctness is the right word, but it's not even political correctness. I think it's more marketing and the business model yeah. of hyper awareness of who your audience is has cut has limited the possibilities of subject matters in certain kinds of books. Um, and uh, yeah. like, for example, like the couple of books I've read recently that have kind of male characters and that one is by Dave Eggers called A Hologram for the King. And it's this his main character is this mainstay of this contemporary literature 
in that the main character is just a total sad sack loser. Everything he does is a failure. And he doesn't, he's like this salesman who can't sell anything anymore. And he doesn't, he's not handy and he's not tough because he was, and it's just, he's a loser, 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 sad sack, feel sorry for himself, feel self-pity, loser, loser. Finally, toward the end, some woman is really attracted to him and he gets his chance to have sex with her and he can't get it up. And then the thing ends with him not getting the big deal that's going to save his, change his life. And it just ends on this whimper of him. And I see that character repeated over and over. And I long for, I mean, hey, if, you, if you're trying to publish a novel, you're going to come across this phrase, strong female characters. Sure. But does, and I think that's great. But I, does that mean you also can't have a strong male character? <laughs> like, it seems it's like there's... It's getting harder to have stronger... I mean, we were talking about being offended. I mean, it is kind of... It's getting harder for male characters to to take the limelight now because people aren't sympathizing. They aren't able yeah. to access that. They're in, Again, we talk about the political climate, the social climate, and how that affects literature. Uh People are tired of identifying with strong male characters. And if we talk about the history of literature and or poetry, you know, and I think about I think about Jack Kerouac and On the Road. And, you know, you have such a history of male writing and males leading the way. Yeah. You know, women had to women grew up reading Steinbeck and there wasn't, you know, the and Hemingway. And we had to just get through that those typical uh, kind of male novels by male novelists, and now women are having kind of this uh, their time in the in the sun, so to speak. And and I think they're, I think males are sometimes reticent to identify with them because there is such a history of male domination yeah. in 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 literature. That's a great point, and it may be just that the pendulum swung a little, and at least for my taste, sure. maybe a little bit too far, and there needs to be a little bit of a correction to say, yeah. hey, we can also have, you can have an occasional macho right. character, macho attitude novel, and I think there is a lot of that in, I don't read these things, but I do think there's a lot of war memoirs. There's a lot of Iraq and yeah. and um, Afghanistan veterans who come back. And that seems to be an acceptable male outlet to be. And But, of course, there's an anti-war message in most of them and probably a sensitivity. Like I said, I haven't read, dived into that that much. Um, I, think, I think you're right, Dan, that maybe this is a topic for another day, the, the whole uh, gendered aspect of literature right now yeah it's a thick topic um do you guys have any final words on this or should we just go into our final segment our our concluding segment and save it for another day i'm gonna save i'm gonna save it all right yeah let's (laughs) okay keep your powder dry yeah what i okay i i'm hoping this will be a a weekly thing or a every episode we'll just kind of end on a quick three question deal and it's, uh, what are you writing? Or you don't have to tell us what you're writing. Some people don't want to do that. Don't want to start describing their plots or, or their, but how's the writing going? How's the reading going? How's the teaching going? <laughs> um, Holly, you want to, you prepared to, you don't have to, you yeah. just say whatever well, you yeah, want. Well, yeah, you know, kinda... I'll just tell you that my, my first year of grad teaching is um, filled with pitfalls. 
and <laughs> a very flawed human being. Uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm enjoying it, and I do like my students. I really love teaching. I find that I can uh, riff pontificate for 75 minutes with no problem and still need more time and I think I'm at sometimes I'm in I I'm very excited to see what the next generation has to offer and other times I feel a lot of despair and that's just due to their age but and you know my own sensibilities probably and um I you know I just read Harrison Bergeron by Vonnegut mm-hmm. um a couple nights ago, my my fourteen year old is reading it, and she came in, and I tell you, I was very excited because I don't know if you guys have read that. I haven't. Sure, it's about nine pages long. It's really short read. It's great, it's and great. um, you know, it's about leveling people and uh, making everybody equal. So if you're more intelligent, for example, oh, is it yeah. from the book Welcome to the Monkey House? Man, I don't know. It but, wasn't originally, but yeah, that is where he anthologized. It. Yeah, okay. I did read. It's like. Excellent. The people. ballet dancers have uh, yes. weights on their legs. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it's definitely it's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> and my fourteen-year-old uh, had to read this for a class, and she came in. I was laying in bed, and she came in, and she was absolutely uh, just struck. Her eyes were big, and <laughs> her mouth was agape, and she said, "Oh my God, Mom!" And I live for that moment. I was yes, re- for one for Vonnegut. Yeah, yeah. I was. You know, I was like, what are you reading? And she showed it to me, and I just was, I was feeling like such a, such a gateway open for her. It was great. Yeah. That's what's going on in my life. And you're writing, I, I, I know you from the kind of um, live local yeah. poetry reading circuit. Yeah. And um, I know you do some kind of bring in a certain a performative dramatic element to your readings which is yeah, awesome thank you um are you working on anything are you uh yeah i'm working on something called the electric jerk off and i <laughs> hope i hope it will That's be real it is real and i have <laughs> i have a few i'll be recording some things um over christmas break and then i have somebody who's in line to hopefully put it on an album and then we'll do some photo shoots and so i hope to have a nice little collection, but yeah, the the title is Electric Jerk Off. That's so. a winner. That's Thank awesome. You. Thank you. That so is much. a winner. I think that it's better. Should... It's much better than the Goldfinch. <laughs> it's better much... than the Goldfinch. It's and, it's definitely more catching. And it's better than um, personal rejection letter. Actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. That, but uh, Dan, what what do you got going on in your life right now? Uh, well, I'm in a the the. My moment right now, I just finished, as you know, Kelly, um, Holly, I just finished working on a, a, a longer uh, piece. I, I had been writing short stories, but a couple of years ago, I thought I wanted to publish a novel, which meant you had to write a novel. Right. So, yeah, for the last four years, that's what I've been doing. And I just finished it. Um, I thought it would take me about a year and a half. It ended up taking me four years. Mm. And um, I've been sending it out. And so that's the the mode I'm in right now. My writing time is going towards sending out cover letters and uh, um, getting rejection letters and trying to work my way through that. But I'm starting to write again a little bit. And I want to recommend a book that my wife, Molly, got me called The Long-Winded Lady. She just found it in a Hmm. used bookstore. And it's Hmm. uh, by this woman named... uh, Maeve Brennan, I'm, I think it's M-A-E-V-E is her first name. Mm-hmm. She's Irish. I think it's Maeve or Meeve. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've heard of her, Maeve Brennan. I'm pretty sure she, I have. 
Yeah, she wrote for the New Yorker, and she wrote a lot of the um, talk of the town pieces, and she mm-hmm. she signed them the Long Winded Lady, and she did that from about the maybe the fifties, sixties, seventies, right in there, and that's what this is. It's a collection of those uh, oh, pieces. Cool. So they're not really they're not fiction, but they're so well observed, and the sentences are so they they just vacillate between just being beautiful and then being really taut in terms of. The, the, the amount of information that she packs into so few words, the economy of the language that I'm sort of become really inspired by them. And I'm, I'm at the, I'm almost done with the book and I'm really slowing down because I don't want to get to the end. So I, I'd awesome. like to recommend, yeah, I, w- I would, I would recommend that as a, as a, to our readers. And I don't know if, it, if it's going to come back to me again. I just want to say, Holly, it was nice to meet you me and it was fun doing this. And I'm yeah, looking forward fun. to doing more. Yeah, likewise. This was awesome. Yeah, a lot of fun. A great time. But Kelly, say what you're working on. Oh, I, I get to, too. Thanks, yeah. Dan. That's nice. <laughs> I, I, I didn't I even would... get to plug my book. How did I forget? <laughs> oh. Outbreak California. It's um, promo code rejection. Um, <laughs> what am I doing? I'm the teach... Well, the our college, just to, as far as the teaching thing going, we're transitioning from a trimester model into a semester model, and that's oh, you finally got that passed. Yeah, that's passed, and so it's we're in the trip in the in the um, process of that, and so there's a million other little questions that come out of that, and it's an opportunity to change curriculum and majors, and so it's everything is on the on the table right now, and so it's a little bit nerve wracking because it's also like, is this the point at which nefarious forces, the forces of the corporate college are going to come in and try to use this as an excuse to skew things. So you have to kind of be aware if you're a faculty member going through this, which I try not to be too involved in faculty politics. And I just want to do my thing, write my stuff, teach my classes, stay out of trouble. But I'm getting sucked into the, the whole politics of it and by necessity. So that's kind of you know, um, taking some time and, and emotional energy and all that kind of stuff. And um, as far as reading, I'm sort of in between books. I uh, I tend to read, like I'll have like three or four books going at the same time when I haven't found what I really want to read. The last thing I read was called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And mm. it was a, you know, starting with like the Big Bang up until the future when the the writer predicts we're going to be replaced by either genetic superhumans or robots or cyborgs. And cool. that's like a real theory in anthropology. It's kind of like a primer of anthropology of everything. So it was a fun book and it, and the thesis of it was really dark in that humans are horrible species. Basically what we've done from the beginning is just genocide everything, all the creatures around us and, and all of the flora and fauna, and we're just getting better and better at that as time goes on. And so it was a sort of a dark book. And uh, right now I'm fumbling around looking for something else. Maybe your guys, uh, your uh, um, recommendation, maybe that'll be something, Dan. Uh, yes, yeah, the long-winded what, lady. I got it. As far as what I'm writing, um, I'm plugging away at a novel, and it's one of those things where I'm really enjoying writing it. I'm a it feels like I'm about halfway through the first draft. So it's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you know, it's just like, whoa, it's so far out. And so I just try to write it whenever I can scrape out some time and just, and move forward with it. Um, 
And it's one of those things where I'm refusing, I'm telling myself not to think of it in terms of selling it or pitching it to an agent or whatever. But now and then that part of me sneaks in and I start thinking about it in terms of a cover letter or a query letter. And it's just, and that is a complete bummer because it's, I don't know. Right. There's just like, it doesn't seem like it translates very well to a perfect query that's going to, and then I think about what, like the worst way to write a novel would be to come up with the query first and then write to the query. Mm. And then, but yet, like books it's like been done. Oh, yeah. the snow falling on cedars. That's is, the one yeah. I thought of. Oh, too, that yeah. book pisses me off because I was young <laughs> enough to where I read the whole thing because I wasn't sure myself enough to to believe that I hated it and that I had the right to hate it. So I read the whole thing and thought, huh, that was sort of boring. But eventually, I got older and more knew more about writing, and I looked back and I went, that was shit. That was like just such a profoundly shitty novel. And um, yet it was famous. And so anyway. Um, but you should say that that was written based on uh, a study that they had done. On yeah. What made a bestseller. So yeah. it, had to have excellent it was Pacific and... Northwest. It wow. was Japanese internment camps. And it was international. A love story with a right. yeah, cross-cultural love story. I had no idea. Yeah. That's what somebody, the author had a friend who was an upper management marketing <laughs> publishing house person. He said, you should write a novel with these three elements because that's what's hot right now. And to his credit, I suppose, or to his it shame, worked. he wow. did it and he got rich. You only need one. That's yeah. my philosophy. He only needed one. He was he a school teacher. One. And so I have a hard time being mean about a school teacher who got filthy rich on a single yeah. book. But on the other hand, it was such a shitty book that I just am still hold a grudge. Yeah, you got to take it personally when uh, you read a book and it turns out to be horrendous. Yeah. It's like a... <laughs> You do you know, have they've to take it personally. Yeah. It's a personal, it's a personal so, contract for sure. For sure. So I guess that's kind of our yeah. first podcast. Um, I'd like to echo Dan's statement that it's been great. Yeah, it was I really can't, fun. I want to let's keep doing it okay. every week for the next. Let's say Ever. let's say so twenty like, yeah. years, and then we'll re- <laughs> we'll reassess. It'll be a okay. twenty year plan. All right, and then we'll do an assessment. That's that's um, college language <laughs> i'm in um, so uh and thank you all who anybody who's listening yeah. bless you and uh a kind of all religion and atheist included blessing because that's how yeah, we are here obviously that's a good blessing yeah. and um do we need to week. thank anybody we already thanked augustana college and gabe thank and gabe yeah. thank you thank yeah. you gabe yeah gabe's through a window and um dan is uh on skype somewhere maybe one I'm day i'm rockford one day but this was so much fun, I might come in for it next time. All right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay. All yeah. right. Bye-bye, everybody. Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Radio. This program is produced by Gabe Tucker, with funding from the Augustana College English Department, and theme music by Sub Atlantic. You can reach us on Facebook at Personal Rejection Letter. See you next time.